friends. This is Secret Sauce, a podcast about the secret ingredients in artwork and life. I'm your host, Becca Borelli. I'm also an illustrator in Austin, Texas, and this episode is entitled Art as a Behavior. I just want to dive in. I love diving in. I think I'm just going to dive into episodes for as long as it makes sense because I don't know about y'all, but I... I'm a podcast person. Um, I'm a podcast listener person as well. I love listening to podcasts and I always skip over the housekeeping at the beginning, you know? (laughs) So let's just do that, shall we? Um, Let's just do that for for people. And and eventually maybe there will be some, some things to talk about at the beginning of these episodes. But for now, I think I want to plunge in. I've been thinking about I've been thinking about this topic and I'm wondering, hmm, I'm wondering about, about how artists are feeling right now in regards to art making. I think that we are in an interesting time in the culture and in the world. And before I go further on, on that topic, (laughs) on the, on the culture, and the world and whatever. Let's, you know, make a disclaimer that every generation probably actually most definitely thinks this, right? They all go through an experience of this is a once in a lifetime experience that our generation is having. It's always true, right? It's always true. And I know Brayden is going to think the same thing (laughs) when he's an adult for sure. But arguably, there are levels of systemic breakdown happening on the planet that have not been experienced before. I think there's a sense from everyone, including the people listening to this podcast, that we're living through a really interesting time where things that have carried our culture and humankind in general for a long time are not working anymore and are breaking forever. And those types of sort of macro trends are happening across the board in politics, in healthcare, economics, our social shared lives together, our local lives together, everything. And I also think it's happening in our artistic communities. And I want to talk about one way that I believe we're experiencing a really big breakdown in our shared artistic lives together. That I want to talk about one story that has worked for a long time with artists of all kinds that isn't working anymore and is breaking. And I think that all of us, to some extent, have been feeling it breaking for a while. And to a certain extent, I know I've been clinging to the old story and also very simultaneously excited to let go of the old story. Um, so that's what today is about. Are you ready? <laughs> Are you ready? <laughs> what about that sexy transition? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm like so rusty, y'all. Thanks for bearing with me. So, so I want to start off today's episode telling a story about 
about art education from a professional standpoint. I want to talk about the way that I was taught to be an art educator because I think there's a lot baked into that education that talks about artistry from a much larger perspective. That there were themes baked into my art education in college that are also deeply baked into every single person's creative practice listening to this right now. So I did my undergrad at Kent State and my graduate, obviously, at, at UT, which is what brought me to Austin. And I didn't plan on being in art education. I started off in graphic design at Kent. And Kent has an excellent design program. It was like boot camp like <laughs> like boot camp like it was it was very rigorous i wasn't ready for it i i really disliked it i had a really really robust love for art making that was cultivated in middle school and high school by excellent teachers i my parents were fortunate enough to pick a public school system outside of Cleveland, Ohio, that was phenomenal. I, when I look back on some of the things that I got to do in the 90s, like jewelry making and um, all kinds of crazy sculpture with like alternative materials, like it was amazing. And so I went into college with this deep robust love for art making and I guess I feel like that's an important thing to state because the graphic design program at Kent at least the early stages of it you know the freshman level classes and possibly the sophomore ones too although (laughs) I never made it that far were really designed to kick that shit out of you. At least that was how I viewed it. It it was designed and and it wasn't and it was designed this way like not like in my imagination. Like this was something that they let us know the first week of the first freshman level design class I took. Like you are you are systematically being weeded out this year. Right? Like you're not in Kansas anymore. You're not the best art student anymore right? Like you're in a class of all the best art students from all different schools across wherever. This is fucking business. (laughs) You're not here. You're not here to like draw fairies and rainbows and have good feelings. (laughs) You're here to learn how to be a fucking badass designer. And if you don't get certain tools and techniques, you're going to (laughs) fail, you know? And that energy was not going to work for me. I, I like I, I, and I so badly wanted it to work for me. Like I wanted to prove that I was strong enough. You know, there was an energy of, can you, ha- can you hack it? If you can't, we don't want you here. Like there, it was very, very, very folk, like a focused, distinct message that was, that was being sent. And it wasn't just the graphic design program at Kent. Like, I would say the architecture school, the interior design school, also, you know, nationally recognized programs were the same way. And I would argue that a lot of college programs that are, you know, known for being 
really prestigious have that energy, right? That's one of their goals is you're going to learn to be a certain way. And if you can't, we don't want you here, you know? And I remember, and I think, I think I've told this story, this particular part of the story in a past podcast episode before, but that first class, it was just a basic studio skills class, y'all. Um, it was so rigorous and I was so terrible at it and I squeaked by with a D plus. And I remember my professor pulled me aside and he said, I'm going to bump you up to a C minus so that you can go on to the next class in the spring. But I just want you to know that that, that professor is not going to be easy on you this way. And if you can't regularly get A's or B's in your design classes, you're going to have to find another major. And I just thought, you know what, I, I don't even want to deal with this again. Like if you're just, if you're doing me a favor, fuck you. <laughs> like That was, you know, it's funny because I suppose I have always had a little bit of this weird mix of personality traits of being really sensitive and also being really like, fuck, fuck this. <laughs> and I remember cr- kind of crying and going to my advisor and my husband has has pointed this out to me over the years um but I cry when I'm really pissed like I really don't cry when I'm sad <laughs> um I was mad I was mad I was mad that this program from my perspective was so gross like I felt like the the reasons that you should be an artist were completely absent from this design program and I was mad I was mad that I was having to renegotiate my dreams because of this crap. And I, uh, but like everything in the world, y'all, everything happens in a way that can be for our benefit, should we be willing to rise to that occasion, right? And so I, I go to my advisor, I'm in tears, and he looks at me and he says, Look, you're, you're, you're a freshman, you have plenty of time. He said, why don't you just go through the catalog with me right now and just point to me some classes, some entry-level classes that you're interested in. And I was intrigued by their K-6 through education intro class. And he said, you know, the art education school here is amazing. He said, a lot of people transfer from design to education, and I think you, you're going to love it. And I remember <laughs> him just saying that immediately made me bristle (laughs) you know like like I was going into one of the softer art art degrees like I couldn't hack it in design so push me into teaching you know and nothing could be further from the truth anyone listening to this who works in education knows that um, education is hard as shit. And I'm sorry I'm swearing. I feel like the last podcast episode I was swearing so much and I know I'm doing it again, but sometimes certain topics, I suppose, require it. And and for whatever reason, I'm feeling that today. (laughs) So thanks for bearing with me. I, and quickly, I quickly realized that even though I was so angry at the design program for pushing me out, 
I realized that the art education program was structured in the same way. It was absolutely very boot camp like. It was very rigorous. It was constantly pushing out people. But I was wired to be a teacher and I and I fit. And so the boot camp nature of that program didn't affect me negatively because I was good at it. And I was like, oh, I get it now. I get why programs are like this, you know. And it was a wonderful art education program. I got such an excellent perspective on art teaching that I am forever grateful for. And one of the really special things about Kent's art education degree program was that prior to the 90s, art education was really relegated to frosting, right? Like it wasn't taken terribly seriously. It was considered like a fun subject. A lot of schools didn't even have art programs. Um, And the teachers that, you know, were doing art program type classes were, you know, doing, you know, like gluing pom-poms onto cutouts that they made of you know animals (laughs) like it was it was considered frosting right and Kent's program kind of came in and said okay okay let's like elevate this a little bit right how how can we create a seriousness around an art education how can we make a case for the power in teaching young children art. It's not going to be through gluing pom-poms on cutouts the teacher made. Like, that's not a way to get taken seriously. And their program was sort of structured around three curriculum areas that all good art education programs should have in, in their particular perspective. And it was a robust education around the principles and elements of design. So... A fancy way of saying making stuff. <laughs> and then art history, right? So learning about different artists, past and present. And then art criticism, learning how to reflect meaningfully on the stuff that you make and the stuff that other people make. And it was it was it was so cool, you know, like I I really ate it up. I I ate it up. I was so excited to be part of what felt like a movement to change art education, to make art education, you know, matter, not just to, you know, administrators and and school districts and states, (laughs) but just to kids and families, right? And so I brought all of that all of that education with me into my first teaching job. And I was ready to blow it up, you know? And immediately I kind of got clotheslined. And I've used that word to describe my first and second years of teaching, but especially the first year teaching, because what they kind of didn't tell us at Kent was that they intentionally created a program that was very theoretical that we were going to figure out the practical shit in the field, like in, in the world. (laughs) And that their job was to imbue in us deep, deep philosophy to draw from. 
that past art education programs had been all practical, right? And so then teachers would go into the field and they would be like, how can I make this really easy for myself, (laughs) right? And the curriculum would reflect that. And so they hammered into us at Kent, like, no, you're not, it's not about being easy for yourself, right? It's about making really meaningful learning experiences for kids and however you can do that, right? So I came in with a lot of idealism, as do so many graduates of all programs, right? They go into a career with a lot of idealism. And I got clotheslined by the reality of a very, very sluggish system, right? The bureaucracy in public education is pretty intense, right? The the slog that is navigating a system like that is very real. And all of the ideas that I was coming in with were just constantly getting beat down by these institutional barriers that were all over the place. I feel like a lot of people listening to to this can relate in lots of different professions. This isn't unique to education, but I would say that it's very, very present in sort of government-run institutions. They've become really known <laughs> for being under underfunded <laughs> and therefore very sluggish, right? They're not nimble. They don't accomplish their goals quickly or even sometimes at all compared to for-profit organizations. And I think this is where a lot of the arguments for privatizing public education come from. A story for another time. <laughs> so I'm getting this, you know, this like complete reorganization in my brain of how I'm going to teach these kids. How am I going to stay true to these ideals that have really, that I've really come to value? from college and how am I going to negotiate them with a system that's completely at odds with a lot of my education and one of the biggest ways that my education was at odds with public school was that the value of most art programs even really progressive art programs. And I would argue that the school district that I was in had a very progressive art program. Um, The value of my job as a teacher, as well as the program in general, was measured on a metric of student work, right? Does it look good? The program is working. (laughs) Does it not look good? The program is not working. And it was really hard for me to negotiate this metric with my philosophy because I know that prioritizing the way that students make stuff to look good isn't always the best for their education. And this is true for anything, right? We are now seeing record numbers of kids graduating high school with the ability to perform on on all manner of evaluations and then they get into college and professional environments and they croak right because 
the things that look really good in the educational environments we have aren't necessarily what kids need for the world. And I was, and I was like really wanting to buck this, you know? And part of the reason I wanted to buck it is because I was working side by side with these little kids, five to 10 year old kids, five to 10, eight, age five to 10 year old children. And they, they have this passionate love for making stuff that was very different than I expected. And also at the same time, very familiar because I also have been a kid and it was watching them make stuff was almost like I was going through this remembering process of something that I had forgotten around why I make stuff. And it took me a little bit of time. You know, I was, it was a few years in before I really was able to unpack what it was that I was noticing. And what I was noticing was this, my art education program at Kent really taught that in order to garner value for the arts, not just in education, but also the world, right? To get funding, to get, to get appreciation, art needed to be framed as skill building, right? And skill building is valuable when is it's valuable within a capitalist model it's valuable within a production line model right things in our culture are currently measured as valuable based on an economic scale right of course of course we have other metrics like of course there's love and and community and and other things that are less quantifiable but the ultimate metric is still does this thing make money right does this thing produce in a market economy right and so kent kent administrators in art education and and professors in art education understood that and they're like if we're going to gain appreciation for arts and art education, we need to appeal to this capitalist economic model. And that is skill building, right? This is going to make kids better workers. This is going to make them better producers. This is going to make them better in the economy. This is economically beneficial, right? And this is how we can measure. And this is how we can prove that our program is working, right? It's through these very concrete goals of studio skills, art history, and art criticism, right? And teaching art as a skill was something that made so much sense to me at the time that I even made a sign in my classroom that said, being an artist is a skill, not a talent, right? Like up until this point, a lot of art programs kind of catered to the talented kids. And if you didn't have an inclination for art, well, sorry, you know, kind of the same as gym class or music class or math class or reading class. Like, you know, in the early part of the 20th century through, you know, the 80s and 90s, you were 
kind of treated like crap (laughs) in certain classes if you weren't just naturally good at them, right? There was no such thing as catering to different learning styles, (laughs) you know? And so I definitely came in to teaching with this philosophy that this is a skill. This is a badass fucking skill. And you can all learn to do it just like you can learn to read, right? This was something I told my kids. I had a sign in the front of the room, you know, art is a skill, not a talent. But there was this thing that was just nagging me about the way that I had learned to teach art and the way that I was experiencing it with kids, that there was something that wasn't grokking between the two. And I honestly sat with it for years before it clicked. And the click was this. Art as a skill is really good for bolstering art programs, but it's not actually the truth of how humans relate to the art making process in general. Art isn't a skill, right? Skills are something that we need to learn because they're not natural to our beings, right? Like reading. There's huge swaths of recorded human history where reading and writing wasn't a thing, you know? And then eventually someone started doing it and then it was very intentionally taught to larger and larger numbers of people. In the absence of it being taught, it is not naturally acquired. That is not true for art. Art has been natural, a natural expression of being a human for a very long time. Even if you are not explicitly taught to make things creatively, you will express yourself artistically in some way for the simple fact that you're a human. Art is a behavior, not a skill. And this was hugely important to the direction of my life and career going forward. I didn't realize it at the time, but everything about my art business, everything about my art practice, everything about the way I teach is now built on this foundational concept. Art is a behavior. Why does this matter for you? Right? Like listening to this. Why does art as a behavior matter? I believe one of there's I believe there's so many reasons it matters, but I think one of the reasons I want to talk about in this episode is that it's really important to remember the foundational reasons we make stuff. And the foundational reasons are behavioral. They're not capitalistic. (laughs) And art making has really been hijacked by the latter. And because of that, it's created whole swaths of the population that say, I'm not an artist. I have no business making art. And that means that the culture then is completely missing out on creations that it desperately needs. And I really believe that. 
I really believe that you listening to this right now are probably not making stuff the world really freaking needs. Because at some point, you bought into the story that if it doesn't meet certain criteria of skill, production value, value from other groups <laughs> um, of, of experts, whoever the fuck that is, <laughs> then you have no business making stuff. That making stuff just because it's a behavior is, it's, it's cute, right? It's sweet, but it's not serious art. Um, no, fuck that. It's actually the most serious art. Here, here's an example. I, I am putting this in my newsletter this month because I really think this illustrates what I'm kind of getting at here. So my son, and I mentioned this in the last episode, but I want to talk about it a little bit more right now. My son has started singing on our hikes together. And it's amazing. Like people that pass us stop me to tell me how amazing it is. Because hearing a one-year-old sing is heart melting. Heart melting. And I'm sure some people listening to this are like, of course it's heart melting. Like anything that a one-year-old does is pretty freaking cute. Yes. But has anyone ever thought about why? Why is it cute? Why is it when my one-year-old hums, it is so cute, and when I hum, it's just like, well, (laughs) whatever. I think it's for a really important reason, and I think it's a reason that gets really overlooked in this capitalist value-based framework we've created around art, right? My son does not sing for any of the reasons that most adults sing. Like he's not singing, first of all, he's not singing for anyone else. (laughs) He's not even singing for me. And he's certainly not singing to make anyone else happy. He's not singing. And then, and because of that, he's definitely not singing for like any type of recognition, any type of celebrity, money, none of that. Like that's not even in his framework yet. If, if it's not for any of those things, and those are the primary reasons that adults sing, like even an adult singing in the shower is is somewhat is somewhat like comparison based like even when you if you sing in the shower or even if you never have sung in the shower but would consider doing it after listening to this podcast episode i guarantee that you are going to be like oh that sounds okay but that eh, could sound better like you're immediately starting to compare There's a voice in your head that has been put there by programs that you've been exposed to from lots of different spaces in your life that have taught you to measure the worth of your creative output. My son doesn't do that yet. And because he doesn't do that, there's a purity of communication that comes through him that is so lovely that you rarely get from adults. Picasso kind of famous, well, not kind of, he he famously talked about this. He said, I spent four years trying to paint, learning to paint like Raphael and a lifetime learning to paint like a child. 
And on the surface, you know, that's a very beautiful comment, you know? He's paying homage to the power of child artistry. And I think it's cute and sweet to everybody that like hears it, but it's more than that. It's more than cute. You know, he's saying, hey, there is something about the way that we're naturally wired to make stuff that took me a lifetime to get back to, right? The, the world kind of kicks it out of you and getting it back isn't easy because we're trying to get it back in a culture that says that's not valuable. It's not valuable to sing for, for no reason other than you're wired to do it, right? Like, I, if I were to sing in the shower right now, I'm pretty sure that I couldn't quiet those critical voices even if I tried. Like, it would take years of meditating and therapy and reflection. <laughs> like, and honestly, y'all, it's the same with my drawing, right? And I get, I get paid to draw, like, really good money to draw. And I still have these voices, you know, demanding that I make that drawing measure up, you know? And so I'm like working with these kids and I'm seeing the same stuff with them that I see with my son now. And it's pure. I don't want to mess with that thing because it's the type of creativity that the world needs more than ever, which is behavioral, right? It's the type of making that doesn't beat up on itself, I've talked many times in this podcast about adult students that I've had that have terrible voices in their heads that kick up really, really strong. Um, I talk about the way that my voices kick up strong. Those things don't come from nowhere, right? They come from living. And it's actually one of the things that makes being a parent really hard is knowing that there's only so much you can protect your kid from. That the culture and the world is going to imbue really unhelpful programs in my son's mind when it comes to all manner of things. And this is just one of them. This is one of them. And so I thought, I, I kind of don't want to do this anymore. Like, I don't want to pound these principles and elements of design into these kids' heads at the expense of this thing that is so pure. The world is going to do that for me. Like, like, I don't need to be speeding up the process when they're five. Like, and I was already kind of understanding like I have y'all had this experience where you understand something in your gut way before you understand it in your mind. Like this is this is pretty much everything as we're learning it. We start to really understand it on a visceral level, but we can't explain it for a long time. So my first year of teaching, like that's where I was at. I thought there's just something about the way that I'm being asked to implement my education 
and the ways that the school system is asking me to structure this program that doesn't feel good to me. I just knew that it didn't feel good. I couldn't say why yet. And so that first year of teaching, I did something that was pretty radical. Um, It was kind of like an experiment for me. And that was that I put almost no visual expectations on my kids. We had benchmarks for learning. And if they met them, great. If they didn't, you know, it would, of course, it, of course there would be, you know, an effect on their grade, but it was very minimal. You know, I, I was really wanting to preserve this thing that I couldn't understand at the time. And it was cool. It was a radical experiment. It didn't work. And, and here's why it didn't work. So, you know, the first two semesters go by. It's a parent-teacher conference night. And, you know, no one really comes to see the art teacher. And I guess I was fine with that. But, there, you know, there were some people that would come in. And I, that my first parent-teacher conference night was painful because the parents that came in and wanted to see their kids work were deeply disappointed, deeply disappointed. Like where's, where's the masterpieces, right? Where's the thing that like meets the standards of beauty that we have? Like, this isn't it. Like the, <laughs> I hadn't held the students to those standards even a little bit. Instead, I was providing them space to make art behaviorally and they loved it but the parents and the administrators and my principal and for all intents and purposes the other teachers didn't and 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 I was so new that no one was going to say anything to me right I I think they all thought oh she's just new she's going to figure it out and I I did I quickly learned that that type of art education wasn't going to work in a public school environment. Like that if I wanted to keep my job, these kids were going to have to start making stuff that looked the way that adults want it to look, you know, and that maybe that sounds kind of gross, but it's not like, you know, like, There's an expectation that all of us have that if our kids go to school, they're going to learn very concrete things. And I have that too. Like when we send our son to school, like I'm, you know, if if he's bringing home stuff that doesn't exhibit that, of course, I'm going to notice it. So it was sort of a realization for me that maybe my particular MO wasn't going to fit in public school and that was the beginning of the end for me there like I didn't realize it at the time you know it wasn't until many years later looking back that I realized that was one of the reasons one of the biggest reasons why I left and this idea of art as a behavior this observation of art as a behavior has fueled 
all of my attempts at art teaching since. And it hasn't been for everybody. Um, and I've learned to say that, you know, out the gate, because it's not for everybody and nor should it be. Um, if you've been listening to this and you're like, shit, I love skill building. Like I, I freaking want, I, art as a skill is exactly what I want. Like I take drawing classes and I want to freaking do value scales and have the professor or, or instructor tell me when I suck, you know, like that, that's something I like. Yeah, that's, that's valid. That's an actually valid way of learning. Um, it's when that's the only way of learning that we systematically teach kids that they're not artists anymore. Art is a behavior. Singing. We're wired to sing. Um, I... I take my son to a library, uh, like reading circle for toddlers. And I was talking to one of the women that runs the children's program at this, at our particular library. And she was telling me, she confided in me. She said, you know, when I started doing these circle times, I realized really quickly that like interspersing stories with music was really important for like toddlers because they don't want to sit still for like multiple stories in a row. She said, but I personally hate my singing voice. And it was so scary for me to start singing as a full grown adult in front of one to three year olds until I realized that they love my voice. Like they literally love it. Why do they love it? Because it's not about skill for them. They don't give a shit. Like, it's about the energy. It's about the energy. Is, does this feel good? Like, does listening to this lady sing a cool song to me and do hand motions, does that feel good in my body? Yes, it does. <laughs> it's It's not until they're older that they start to pick up on systems of value set in place by the culture and then implement them in their own mind states, you know? And I wanted to do an episode about this topic because it's, it's important to the culture, I think, in this space and time in a way that it hasn't ever been historically. Even just 10 years ago, talking about this would have been considered a little bit fluffy, right? Like, you know, like, okay, like, it's cool that we make art for our feelings, like, <laughs> but artists especially have kind of been relegated into the frosting space of society, right? I think all of us deep down want to be taken seriously, right? Like, I have to tell you that it means so much to me, so profoundly much to me to be able to say, yeah, I did a mural for Visa. Yeah, I did a mural for, mural for Dell. Yeah, I have artwork on the side of semi-trucks from Boston Beer Company. Like, that feels awesome. 
making art for organizations like that did not come from a solely behavioral standpoint. It came from skill building and systematically learning principles and elements of design and learning interpersonal skills to talk with people and learning how to type emails that make sense. Like all of that was made possible by a very rigorous education that said this shit's not okay and this shit is okay. This is once again an episode about both and. And for too long, we've just been one side of the scale, which is does your art making measure up product wise? Does this thing have value in an economy? Does this thing have value to other people? Does this thing have value based on what the art standards are of this particular time and space? If not, that's cute, right? Can't we all relate to that, right? It's a hobby. It's sweet. It's nice. It's feelings. That's, it's cool, but it's not like freaking, you know, you're not like selling it like a master, right? Isn't that hierarchy there in all of us, myself included? And what I'm trying to make a case for in this episode is what if that's changing, What if we are at the very beginning of the end of this particular hierarchy? What if art as a behavior is about to take precedence in the next century (laughs) over art as a commodity? Because this this is why art as a behavior matters. By the way, we haven't talked about that yet, but I want to close the episode with with this because this is why art as a behavior matters. When things are behaviors, it's because there's an evolution, an evolutionary adaptation that benefited the human race, right? Things that are ingrained in us are there for a reason. And I think there's a lot of reasons that we are wired to make things creatively, But here's the big one. The big one is that it is a profound, profound nervous system regulator. It is the way that we come home to ourselves. Going through a bad breakup, put in a movie. Yeah. Consuming art counts, (laughs) right? Having a terrible home life, go into your bedroom and draw, right? A lot of artists talk about using art as a way to get out of a world that was really painful. It's a nervous system regulator. It's profoundly healing to our inner worlds. This is something that the ancient Greeks and Romans talked about a lot, that science is the study of the physical world. It's the study of the things that we can pick up with our five senses, the things we touch, the things we see, the things we hear, right? Science is there to help us break down our world, right? Art does the exact same thing for our inner world. It's the invisible parts of us, the subconscious, the feelings, the emotions. When we engage with art making, we are engaging with scientific inquiry of our inside inquiry of our insights and 
generally the culture doesn't frame art that way. We don't, we don't get taught that art does this at all. We, we know it like in this very amorphous way. We know that when we consume different kinds of art, when we make different kinds of things, we feel amazing. It helps us understand parts of our hearts and souls that were previously mysterious to us. But we have art education programs that are still like principles and elements of design, art history, criticism, right? Like talking about the way that art brings us home to ourselves and helps us clarify our inner worlds is not valuable, dot, 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 yet. But I really believe we are in the beginning of a shift around that. And it's not just in art, it's in everything, right? We're not going to fix our situation on the planet with more of what we've been doing. What we've been doing has gotten us to where we are. And that includes a lot of our ideas around education and artistry. I, I really believe that getting back to the roots of why we do things is something that's happening collectively on the planet right now. And what could be more beneficial for the planet than nations of people getting back to the behavioral reasons they make things, which is regulation and inner nurturing. Like what, what could possibly be the benefit of a bunch of regulated, nurtured people on the planet? I wonder what, right? This is cool shit. This is what I want to talk to UT kids about, right? We're, we're on the precipice of a shift in a lot of areas of the world, and art is one of them. The airy-fairy, hippy-dippy reasons you made art as a kid are potentially going to save us. Art is a behavior. We're wired to do it for a reason. <laughs> Evolution doesn't screw up like that, right? Even things that we don't totally understand, like why do I have an appendix? There's, you know, scientists have found that there are reasons, right? There are reasons we evolved to make things with or without instruction. Yeah. Yeah. So take this with you into your making practice. I am, this is a philosophy for me that I've been unpacking for the last 17 years and I still can't implement it fully in my life. I don't know if we're supposed to, right? We still exist in a planet that values a capitalist model of artistry, right? I, 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 I don't know if it would be helpful for me to totally relegate my art making to only behavioral, but I do know that when I've completely stopped making art just to regulate myself, I've suffered greatly. A lot of professional artists know this. 
because they start making art only for money and it kills them. It kills them inside, right? But similarly, artists making only for a hobby at some point, at some point, need it to go out there. And, and maybe not to sell it. You know, I know so many artists that have no desire to sell their work. But everyone who makes things long enough needs them to go out into the world and be received in some type of way that, that is measured. Even if they're just gifting them to friends and family, right? Knowing that other people look at that thing and are like, yes, I will hang that on my wall, right? Getting that kind of feedback is very important. It's both and, and they can coexist together, right? Having your work measured (laughs) in capitalist structures is okay, but we've gotten ourselves into a a pickle, (laughs) if I can use that hysterical word, when we've made that our sort of god of artistry, right? We, we put that thing on the pedestal, right? We've pedestalized that type of art making at the expense of the behavior. Uh, y'all, to the point where we don't even view art as a behavior anymore, you know? I mentioned it before. Let's let's mention it one more time before we close here. There are way more people than I would like in the world today who think they have no business making art of any kind because they've eaten up this narrative that's bullshit and it's going to die. It's time for it to die. You know, Picasso was a questionable dude in a lot of ways, but he was very smart in others and he... He also, you know, along with his taking his whole life to make art like a child, he also said, all of us are born artists. The problem is remaining that way as we grow up. He was right. We're, it's like in us, we're wired to make shit. And, and we're wired to make shit because it makes everything about our lived experience better. It's like taking a shower for the soul. If you don't make anything at all, there are parts of your inner world that are going to get incredibly stagnant and incredibly dirty. It's, it's, it's airing out parts of your inner world all the time. Art is very, very intimately tied to who we naturally are. It is not a skill. Maybe I will at some point completely revisit this philosophy and change a bunch of it because a lot of the things in this podcast episode have evolved over the past almost two decades (laughs) and so I'm sure they will continue to evolve but I think that there's things in this idea that really serve artists right now and I hope they serve you take what resonates with you and leave the rest because as you know uh the verbal the verbal vomit in this podcast (laughs) is, is not 
like this isn't me transcribing from the universe y'all it's not like they're dictating into my ear <laughs> like i'm an a very imperfect conduit there's lots of static and so there are pieces that aren't gonna jibe with you just dump them and the pieces that do please keep them and nurture them in your own practice because there are stories that are coming into existence in our artistic lives together that are going to radically shape a way better planet. I'm certain of it. Until next time.